When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about one of the first missionaries to Hawaii, Hiram Bingham. Just a disclaimer up front, I started this episode thinking, oh, I'll cover a little bit of Hawaii beforehand, then I'll dive into Hiram Bingham, and I turned out to be wrong. Hawaii's history is very interesting, especially the royal family. They play a big role in the acceptance of Christianity and the start of the gospel before missionaries arrive. It was so interesting. So this episode will cover Hiram and his very important role in bringing in the gospel, but it will also be a wide lens snapshot if such a thing exists at the beginning of Christianity through the eyes and efforts of native Hawaiians as well as Hiram. Okay, maybe you knew this. I certainly didn't. Maybe it's a common knowledge thing, in which case you can feel free to laugh at me. You know the Sandwich Islands. I've heard of them on and off, but never really thought about it. The Sandwich Islands are what James Cook, the famous English navigator who did a lot of amazing things, like create the first accurate map of the Pacific. He named them when he landed there in 1778, which seems really late for the discovery of an entire populated island chain. But I guess it makes sense if you're just trying to get from A to B to stay alive. Hawaii sits in the middle of the Pacific Ocean between, like, California and the Philippines or Taiwan, so nobody was really going out of their way to find it. But James Cook had been tasked with charting Antarctica and stumbled upon Hawaii in the process. But why are they named the Sandwich Islands, you ask? Because Cook named them after one of his patrons, John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich. And if any one of you would like to become patrons of the show, we'll name an island chain after you as well. John Montague is also who the sandwich is named after because he would request his meat tucked between two pieces of bread. So feel free to drop that little tidbit on somebody this week. Anyway, James Cook actually ended up dying in Hawaii on his third visit from a skirmish with the locals, but that didn't stop people from coming over and checking it out. Before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the cultural and religious makeup of Hawaii. And this is just an advance before we get into discussing place names and people, but if anyone is listening from Hawaii or is from Hawaii... I apologize for any accidental mispronunciations that may occur. The Hawaiian Islands were populated way back in the early 300s AD, or maybe as late as 1100 AD, by neighboring Polynesian islands. So a lot of the religious heritage Hawaii has comes from Polynesia. Hawaii had a caste system very similar to India. You were born into a certain social class, and that's just where you stayed. You couldn't climb up the ladder, but you could certainly go down the ladder. And there were four social classes. You had the royal class. These were the chiefs that ruled the various islands. Hawaii wasn't united until 1810. Then you had the kahuna class, which is where we get the term the big kahuna. This was the priestly class. Interestingly, anyone who was an expert in their craft, like scientists or navigators, was also considered a kahuna. Thirdly, there was the commoner class. This is the farmers, fishermen, the ones who made the island tick. Hawaii was run very much like the feudal systems of Europe. Lastly, you have the outcast class. These were the slaves that were captured in various tribal wars who served the royal class. 
Alongside the caste system, you had the religious system or the kapu system. Religion held ancient Hawaiian society together, affecting habits, lifestyles, work methods, social policy, and the law. The legal system was based on religious taboos. There was a correct way to live, to worship, to eat, and many other things. For example, one kapu included the provision that men and women could not eat together. Another dictated that fishing was limited to specified seasons of the year. And perhaps the most serious kapu required that the shadows of the royal class must not be touched, as this was believed to steal a person's mana or spiritual life force. In fact, violating kapu even by accident was punishable by death. Hawaii had an entire pantheon of gods, but their major ones were personifications of the forces of nature, the god of war, god of light and life, god of harvest and rebirth, and the goddesses of fire and water. What is really interesting, going back to James Cook, is that at the time he arrived in Hawaii coincided with the seasonal worship of Lono, the god of light. They saw the ship's mast as a symbol of Lono and the color of his skin as being signs of Lono's reincarnation. As I mentioned earlier, though, he still died in a skirmish and he was ceremonially cremated and his bones were buried in a sacred place. And in 1810, King Kamahamaha the Great united the islands for the first time in history, forming the Kingdom of Hawaii. He was a devout worshipper of Hawaii's god of war and welcomed trade with England and America. And as a side note, this is actually why England didn't send missionaries, because they were like, oh, he's such a devout follower of the god of war that he wouldn't be interested in Christianity, which is weird, but that's why England had less of a presence missionarily, that's a term, than America did. Polygamy was a thing in Hawaii at the time, and Kamahamaha had two favorite wives, Kaahumaan and Kepualani. And after he died in 1819, his son ascended the throne as Kamahamaha II. Kaahumaan served as queen regent until her death, and these two women are very important. They played a very big role in the acceptance of Christianity in Hawaii. Roughly one year before the missionaries got there, Kaahumaan and Kepualani convinced the king to end the kapu system, the religious system, and destroy the temples and such, and surprisingly he agrees, celebrating the change with a feast of forbidden foods, eating in the same room as the women, which was forbidden moments ago. In the same time frame, we have another cool moment. I mentioned how Hawaii's deities were tied to forces of nature, and one of these forces of nature, particularly in Hawaii, was the volcano. Volcanic eruptions were said to be caused by angering the goddess of fire. Kepualani, the king's mother, ascended the top of the Kilauea volcano, which is the most dangerous volcano in the world, and she got to the rim, picked the forbidden berries, ate them, and threw rocks into the molten lava, essentially spitting in the goddess's face. When she wasn't struck dead, it weakened the faith of the people and their belief system, making them more receptive to the gospel. Okay, now that I brought you up to speed on what was happening in Hawaii before the missionaries came, let's talk about Hiram Bingham. Hiram Bingham was born one of 13 children in 1789 in Vermont, and his family were early, early settlers to America, having settled in 1650. He went to Andover Theological Seminary, which was a Congregationalist seminary, the same one that Adoniram Judson went to, as well as Joseph Nasima, who was mentioned in Part 2 of our Rise and Fall of Christianity in Japan episode. While Hiram's at seminary, he hears Henry Ubukaya speak about Hawaii, and a little background on Henry because he is very important. In 1809, Henry became the first Hawaiian convert to Christianity while sailing to New England, and he decided that he wanted to become a minister, and he became famous for telling others of the needs of Hawaii, and he died before his dream of going back was realized by his memoir, telling of his hopes and dreams of the Christianization of Hawaii became a bestseller in New England and influenced droves of missionaries to go. Hiram Bingham is one such missionary. He finishes up his schooling, gets ordained, gets commissioned by the same Congregationalist Mission Board which Adoniram Judson helped found, and he's all set to go. 
except for one little problem. In those early days of missions work, many organizations refused to send people who were not married. Hiram had been engaged, but then it got broken off. Now he couldn't go. But surprisingly, this wasn't as difficult of a problem as you may think it would be to solve. A lot of single people wanted to go to the mission field, and they weren't going to let a little thing like dating or romance get in the way. So not long after he finds himself unattached, he runs into Sybil Mosley, who asks him for directions. He gives her a ride, and three weeks later, they're married. Life was really different back then. In October of 1819, Hiram leads the Pioneer Company, as they were known. They are made up of preachers, teachers, a doctor, a printer, and a few farmers. They began life in Hawaii living in a simple native hut and conducting worship under the trees. But with the support of native leaders, their influence grew. And in 1826, Bingham was able to make a preaching tour on the island of Hawaii in the company of Ka'ahumaan, the queen regent of Hawaii. She became a Christian the year before and urged fellow Hawaiians to become Christians. With her encouragement, Bingham was able to build churches, conduct classes, create a Hawaiian alphabet, before this it was merely a spoken language, and began translating the Bible into Hawaiian. When the missionaries first began teaching classes, they taught them in Hawaiian and not in English, and this was partially because they wanted to practice, but also because the caste system was so recently dismantled, they didn't want to create another caste of English-speaking Hawaiians. Years later, they began to teach classes in English only. Overall, Hawaii was very open to the gospel. It was a hard mission field in that they were the first ones doing stuff, setting up a church or a school, things like that, but it also must have been really cool to be on the forefront of what God was doing. For the next 21 years, Bingham and the other missionaries worked to build and establish relationships, started missionary schools, built hospitals to provide medical care, Hiram served as the pastor of the first church in Hawaii, and also as a trusted advisor to the king and Ka'ahumaan. He helped sort things out between the Hawaiians and other foreigners on the islands. Now, if you remember the king's mother, the one that spat in the face of the goddess of fire, she was among the first converts to Christianity. She adopted Western clothing, learned to read and write, and abolished polygamy. In 1823, she fell ill and summoned the missionary families. And as she's laying there in bed, knowing she's ready to die, looking back on her life, she says this. Jehovah is a good God. I love him and I love Jesus Christ. I have given myself to be his. I think very much of my grandfather and my father and my husband and all of my deceased relatives. They lived not to see these good times and to hear of Christ Jesus. They died depending on the false gods. I exceedingly mourn and lament on account of them, for they saw not these good times. The Queen Regent Ka'ahumaan presented Hawaii with its first codified body of laws modeled after Christian ethics and the values and the Ten Commandments. After she was baptized, she took the name Elizabeth, and she helped negotiate the first treaty between America and Hawaii. And in 1827, she came down with an intestinal illness. That same year, missionaries printed the first copy of the New Testament in Hawaiian. They bound it in red leather and engraved it in gold letters and presented it to her. She kept it with her until her death in 1832. Hiram Bingham presided over her funeral. Hiram himself stayed in Hawaii for 21 years. He helped complete the translation of the entire Bible in 1839. And a few years later, Sybil became ill and had to return to America. She died shortly thereafter, and he wanted to go back to Hawaii, but he never made it over. Instead, he became the pastor of an African-American church in New Haven, Connecticut, until his death in 1869. Over the course of a little over 40 years, from 1820 to 1863, known as the Missionary Period, about 180 men and women in 12 different companies served in Hawaii to carry out Hawaii's first converse dream of reaching Hawaii for the gospel.
we're not quite done with Hiram yet. Actually, we are done with him, but we aren't done with his descendants. His son Hiram Bingham II is also a missionary to Hawaii, and he had a very faithful ministry throughout his life. His grandson, Hiram Bingham III, he discovered Machu Picchu, the Incan ruins in Peru. Very cool, right? Now, his great-grandson is the coolest of all. He was a U.S. diplomat stationed in Marseille, France during World War II when Germany was invading France, and at great personal risk and against the State Department orders, he, a Protestant Christian, used his government status to help over 2,500 Jewish people escape the Holocaust from 1939 to 1941, and he was recognized as one of 11 diplomats who saved 200,000 lives from the Holocaust, which amounts to 1 million descendants of survivors today. He is the only U.S. diplomat to have been officially honored by the State of Israel as a righteous diplomat, and he is the only American diplomat recognized during Israel's 50th anniversary at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. The Hiram Binghams have a very impressive legacy. This week, if anybody asks you about the Christianization of Hawaii or about any of the Hiram Binghams, you'll be ready to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star and a written review about some things you like about the show. I'll see you next week. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.